Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. A federal grand jury in Detroit today charged the 13 top leaders of the Weathermen with plotting to bomb public buildings in Chicago, Detroit, New York, and Berkeley, California. The Weathermen are the militant faction of the Students for a Democratic Society. Only one of the 13 is now in custody. At 7.30 this morning, KPFK received a call from a woman identifying herself as a member of the Weather Underground. Hello. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. This is the first communication from the Weatherman Underground. Kids know the lines are drawn. Revolution is touching all of our lives. I got involved with... Uh was Weatherman and then what became the Weather Underground back when it formed in 69 and 70. And we formed in the cauldron of uh, intense struggle against the war in Vietnam and racism at a time when the Black Panthers, who were leading force in the black struggle that we identified with, were getting cut down and assassinated at a time when uh, we were highly charged and moved by pictures of children in Vietnam getting napalm, massive demonstrations that didn't stop the war. In that context, we came out of uh, the radical student movement, at that time predominantly white, called Students for a Democratic Society. In the context of seeing a lot of the people who inspired us and who had led the protests getting assassinated or putting in, put in prison, and a war that was so brutal and wouldn't stop, a small section of what was the broad student movement decided we had to be in a position to carry out illegal forms of struggle against the government. Chesa Boudin is a public defender running for DA. He is part of a movement across the country for people to ask for real justice. He is the people's choice and he is the only progressive in the race, Chesa Boudin. Thank you. Wow. Uh, let me just see a quick show of hands. Who here voted for Bernie Sanders last time around? Yeah. I'm so proud to be part of this group, to have voted for Bernie Sanders, to be ready to do it again this year. Now, I know that every one of us in this room, can you hear me in the back? Okay. I know that every person in this room who just raised their hand, who voted for Bernie, who's ready to do it again, has a different reason for why he is their candidate. I want to tell you my reason. Because I know that Bernie Sanders is the only presidential candidate who is truly committed to ending mass incarceration. Yeah. Yeah. And those two words, mass incarceration, those are words that we hear every day. What do they mean? Mass incarceration means that the United States is a country that incarcerates the most people of any country in the world. It means we incarcerate 25% of the world's prison population. It means that in a place like San Francisco, where the population is 
4% African American, more than 50% of the jail is African American. Mass incarceration also means something very personal to me. Mass incarceration means that in this country, more than 50% of the population has an immediate family member that is either incarcerated today or was previously incarcerated. I'm one of the majority. When I was in diapers, my parents left me at the babysitter and they never came home. My mother served 22 years in prison. My father may never get out. Now, Chesa has a very interesting background because he comes from a family of revolutionaries. He has a law degree from Yale, and he was also a public defender in the city of San Francisco, so it's witnessed firsthand how messed up our criminal justice system actually is. Um, Welcome, Chesa. Thanks, Tina. Great to be here. Yeah, so I first I first want to talk a little bit about your childhood because I think your background and experiences have helped to form your positions now as a criminal uh, reformer, criminal system reformer. Uh, you are the child of two weather underground activists, Kathy Bodine and David Gilbert, uh, who both spent time in prison. I think your dad actually might still be in prison for the activism. That's right. Okay. So they, uh, the Weather Underground, for folks that don't know, was a revolutionary activist group in the 60s, early 70s. They were originally formed to protest the war. Uh, they were anti-imperialist, uh, you know, this sort of thing. But they're, they're known for eventually engaging in some uh, violent actions, including bombing the Pentagon. Ho Chi Minh's birthday was also marked in Washington. A bomb exploded early this morning in the Pentagon, and left-wing terrorists telephoned newspapers to say they were responsible. Stephen Gear reports. The explosion destroyed one of the Pentagon's 140 women's restrooms and blasted out a wall on the fourth floor. No one was injured. The explosion came at 1 a.m., just moments after the Pentagon's duty officer received a warning based on one of a number of calls to newspapers, one of which said the Pentagon would be bombed in celebration of Ho Chi Minh's birthday. Rumors of other bombs plagued officials during the day, but sweeps of the building turned up nothing. Speaking for the Pentagon was an Air Force officer called to duty early this morning. No one was hurt, fortunately, but I'd like to point out that only through good fortune that the people who work in the Pentagon at night were not seriously hurt or killed. There are quite a few people working right down the hall from where the explosion took place who could have very easily have been in that area at the time. Uh, They had no warning at all and could have been seriously hurt or killed by this irresponsible act. Water from pipes ruptured in the blast seeped down to floors below the restroom, interrupting operation of an Air Force computer bank for several hours, soaking office furniture and equipment, and shutting down some stores operated as concessions in the concourse. So far, there's no monetary estimate of the damage. Much of the Pentagon is a public area with visitors and tourists roaming through the halls, but security was tighter today than yesterday. So you were raised by your adopted parents, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who were two of the founders, um, who are well known in leftist activist circles at that time. But I think the young kids of this generation 
aren't familiar with who they are and I think they should be. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Was it rough growing up, uh, not knowing or not being able to see your parents all the time, but knowing that they fought the good fight? And how did that form your opinions now as a public defender running for DA? Certainly growing up with parents in prison is hard. It was hard for me. It's hard for the millions of other children in the United States who have a a parent or both parents incarcerated. Uh, My situation was different in a couple ways that, that you've already talked about. I mean, my parents had a long history of, of political activism and organizing. Um, folks on the far right call them terrorists. Um, and, you know, for me, growing up in a household that was politically engaged, politically conscious, um, made me think really critically about the mistakes my parents had made, the impact it had on the, the people who were killed in the crime uh, that they were ultimately sentenced to prison for. Uh, and made me think really hard as well about how badly broken our criminal justice system is, the ways in which it was failing to rehabilitate the other people incarcerated with my parents, the ways in which it cost, you know, billions of dollars um, to really focus on punishing people rather than healing the harm caused by crime and the tremendous destruction that our criminal justice system leaves in its wake. I've watched children who I knew from the prison visiting room grow up, and and many of them ended up in, incarcerated themselves. Um, and because I was in a in a household that was politically conscious and and critically engaged with the world, I, I thought about those things, and I thought about how lucky I was in many ways, despite my parents' incarceration, because I I had a, a stable family, and I had uh, two big brothers that loved me. And I, I really ended up with four parents who cared for me. And so many kids with parents in prison don't have anything close to that level of support and stability to overcome the trauma of parental incarceration. Yeah. So there's a saying that if you make peaceful revolution impossible, you make violent revolution inevitable. Do you think that that's true? Well, yes, that was uh, something John F. Kennedy said. And I think it was in the context of the Cold War and mm-hmm. watching the role that um, that Russia and the Soviet Union were playing in so many parts of the world, and, and also reflecting on the failures of U.S. foreign policy uh, in the context of the Cold War. And so I, I do agree with that statement. I think it's essential that we create the possibility for peaceful change, for peaceful democratic change. And that's a big part of why I'm running for district attorney. I believe that we can have a peaceful revolution in our criminal justice system, that this mm-hmm. is the moment for that. Uh, this is the moment, and San Francisco is a uh, excellent place to start that process. Yeah, I agree. I think we are absolutely in the midst of a revolution right now, um, and I think Bernie Sanders had a lot to do with instigating that. Having said that, I think it's important to mention, you know, the Weather Underground didn't escalate to bombing the Pentagon overnight. Uh, you look back in that period of time, and they were they originally were part of the student uh, Students for Democracy, I believe was the name of the organization. Which, uh, SDS, Students SDS. for a Democratic Society, yeah. Okay, so now, you know, if you think back at that time, we were in a war that was more or less based on colonialism. And we were arguing that it was fighting communism, whatever the hell that means. And we were absolutely murdering and genociding a group of people in the name of, I'm not sure what at this point, American imperialism, I guess. And it seems to me that the peaceful protests weren't 
getting anywhere. They weren't going anywhere. You had students then that were killed on campuses at Kent State, et cetera. So there was a lead up to how that happened. And I think on a certain level, even if it can't be justified, the violence itself, I think it can be understood. So, well, I, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I want to be clear. I didn't live through that period. Uh, I was only a right. year old when my biological parents were arrested. Right. What I know is, is from the history books. And I, I look back and I understand the war in Vietnam to have been a, 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 a tragedy, a, mm-hmm. a horrific, costly tragedy. It cost so many lives and so much money and did so much damage, not just to the, to the, to the country of Vietnam that was, carpet bombs in the air, not just to the yeah. generation of young Americans that were killed and maimed and traumatized by, by being sent over there to fight during the time of their life, mm-hmm. uh, but also to, to the culture of, of our country and the way we thought about our role in the rest of the world. It was a tremendously costly mistake yeah. to go into that war. And I think my parents and many in their generation saw that and they saw it and felt it happening to them and their peers, and they were desperate to try to stop it. Yeah. Uh, and there's no question they made some mistakes in their efforts to do that. But I think history shows that they were on the right side of that issue, that, that the Vietnam War was a mistake, that we shouldn't have been there, and that the sooner we ended that war, the better. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up uh, in an era where the the Bush administration, the two different Bush administrations, were mm-hmm. uh, waging war in Iraq, in the Middle East. And so... You know, I, I can relate in the sense that I saw that war unfolding uh, as an unjust war, as a war we didn't need to embark on that would right. be tremendously costly and destructive. And uh, I organized peaceful protests uh, as, a, as a middle schooler and as a, a college student for the second Gulf War to try to prevent the United States from, from waging war in a foreign country that most people in this in this country can't even find on a map. Yeah. Sadly, that's true. And unfortunately, my concern at this point is it seems that we still have not learned our lesson. We now have more neoconservatives in the Trump administration, Bolton for one, Mike Pompeo for another, that are looking to wage war in the name of American imperialism again. So it seems it seems as if we're, we're repeating this history. And I'm, I'm wondering if we end up with violent revolutionaries again because it's just ratcheting up. Well, I, I, you know, I certainly think there's always that possibility, and, and mm-hmm. I, I, I hope to avoid it. I think peaceful change is is more sustainable and is certainly healthier uh, for, yeah. for all the people impacted by it. I'm excited. You know, my focus is criminal justice, and I'm excited that in this moment in American history, as, as outrageous as the Trump administration is, as mm-hmm. embarrassing and humiliating as, as uh, its policies are, to the United States and the rest of the world. Um, this is a moment where for the first time in my lifetime, there's a broad-based consensus that we need a drastically different approach to criminal justice. And we see the beginnings of this peaceful revolution in places like Philadelphia, where Larry yeah. Krasner was elected, and in Boston with with Rachel Rawlins, and in, in Queens, hopefully, with Tiffany Caban. Yeah. So there is a national movement that is broad-based, that is diverse, that is inspirational to so many folks who have had their lives touched by crime or the criminal justice system and recognize that we need to do things differently. 
Absolutely. Um, and I think you're correct on that. We're, we're seeing the changes happening now. So you, speaking of that, you come through, uh, come from a line of attorneys. You're not the first in your family. I believe um, Bernadine Dorn's an attorney, I think. Yes. Uh, yes, correct. And your grandfather, Leonard Bodine, is a very famous leftist attorney. He's known for uh, defending Daniel Ellsberg and Fidel Castro, among others. So what sort of influence did Leonard have over your career? I grew up surrounded by lawyers who used their profession to fight on behalf of people who were marginalized or oppressed, to fight on behalf of causes that were often unpopular in the time. Uh, but because of their commitment to broader principles, principles yeah. like the First Amendment. And my grandfather was a First Amendment lawyer, uh, among other things. Uh, principles like the right to travel, yeah. um, when the U.S. government tried to take away people's passports because they didn't want them traveling to certain countries. Uh, right. You know, principles like um, democracy, when that was under attack during uh, the, the, the McCarthy era. And, 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 you know, the very ability to express your political views was under attack uh, from the highest levels uh, in the U.S. Senate. Um, and so seeing uh, people like my grandfather and, and others who use the law as a tool for social change, as a tool to give voice to the marginalized and the excluded, made me, from, from an early age, consider becoming a lawyer mm -hmm. uh, because of what a powerful uh, uh, mechanism it is for uh, influencing policy and and saving lives. Right. Indeed. And so you also spent some time in Latin America, I believe, and you wrote a book about Hugo Chavez's revolution in Venezuela. What are your thoughts? I did. On, I did on spend a lot of time in. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I did spend a lot. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, yeah, right. I did spend a lot of time in, in, uh, in Latin America over the years, um, in Chile and Venezuela. I, I wrote a couple books, um, and, uh, some of them did deal with, with Venezuela. I translated a book of interviews with, uh, then President Chavez mm. into English. Okay. Um, I think, you know, we look at what's happening in Venezuela today and it is, it's tragic. Uh, yeah. the country's economy is in shambles. There's political instability. Um, there's, uh, constant interference from, from neighboring countries that have a stake in, in the outcome, uh, coup attempts. Right. Um, and, it's uh, it's a very desperate situation for the people on the ground who often are struggling to get enough to eat. Um, and this just 10 or 15 years after uh, the country was in the midst of a historic oil boom yeah. that led to uh, economic surplus and free health care for all and subsidized food for all. Um, so it's a very sad thing to see the country go from a place of so much prosperity and hope and optimism uh, when I was there to where it is today, which is yeah. uh, tremendously uh, unstable and desperate. Why does the United States, well, I think we know the answer, but why does the United States feel the need to constantly overturn governments, apply sanctions, uh, engage in this sort of interventionism in the name of imperialism that causes the instability, I think. And then they turn around and say, well, it's a humanitarian crisis. We now need to intervene further. And it seems like this cycle of wash, rinse, repeat that occurs. And I believe at the end of the day, it's probably about resources, uh, a pair, uh, protecting American corporate interests abroad, et cetera. But when will we learn our lesson? Because in the, in the bigger picture, we're the ones that we end up paying a bigger price. I don't think it's worth the trade-off, not only for the folks that we are creating devastation for, but also for our country. 
Yeah, it's it's a problem that we don't learn from policy mistakes. Uh, mm-hmm. It's true in foreign policy, uh, you know, with the repeated and failed interventions in wars uh, abroad, and it's true in criminal justice, which is my focus today. Um, right. You know, we we have seen these tough on crime policies not work to make us safer, not work to rehabilitate people, not work to make right. victims feel that their voice is heard, and yet. Um, you know, in jurisdiction after jurisdiction, we see people running for office uh, of district attorney promising to be tougher on crime than the last candidate. And it just doesn't work, and people don't seem to learn that lesson. I think uh, what's so exciting about this moment is that there is a recognition that uh, we can do things better, that we can do things differently, and that there's a possibility to actually save money, make ourselves safer, and treat people caught up in the system more humanely. Uh, all at once. And, you know, that's an exciting thing. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, Kamala Harris has turned a lot of leftists against this idea that one can be a progressive prosecutor, sort of that those two terms are mutually exclusive. Um, What do you say to these folks? Is there a a response that you have to that? Well, absolutely. I mean, I don't think, um, you know, Kamala Harris is is the best example of a progressive prosecutor because she (laughs) was, I mean, for a number of reasons, she was a prosecutor well before the progressive prosecutor movement e- even existed. Um, and so there's really a historic uh, effort on her part to, to sort of go back and, and claim to be something that didn't even exist when she was district attorney. But um, what I say to that is someone's going to be district attorney and um, someone is going to be making the decisions about who to file charges against and what sentences to seek. And it's imperative that the person who does that be progressive. And what I mean by be progressive is be committed to decarceration, be committed to attacking the root causes of crime, be committed to making our community safer for everybody, whether they live in a tent or whether they live in a mansion, whether they live in the jail or whether they work in the police department. Um, Everybody in our community deserves to be safe and to feel safe in their homes. And that's not happening right now. We can do better than the system that we see around us every day with homeless people on the streets, with car break-ins uh, as an epidemic, with drug addiction and mental illness going untreated, with a with a legal system that promises equal justice under law, but instead of that uh, offers a, a get-out-of-jail-free card to the rich in the form of money bail. Right. Let's talk about those two things uh, for a moment. So I think a lot of affluent folks believe that car break-ins, that homelessness and the like, they view these things as crime problems. I think in many ways they are socioeconomic problems. I think they're the inevitable outcome of extreme income inequality in the country. Is that something you would agree with? Well, I think we, if someone breaks into a, a, a car and steals a backpack, it is absolutely a crime. The question is, how do we how do we address that crime? How do we prevent it? And how do we hold the people who commit that crime accountable in a way that prevents it from occurring in the future? And what we're doing right now is is none of those things. What we're doing right now is ignoring the root causes, whether it's wealth inequality, whether it's drug addiction and mental illness, um, and and we're instead focusing on trying to punish people as harshly as possible without any engagement with the actual root causes. So in San Francisco, for example, 75% of people booked into county jail are drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. And yet we don't offer meaningful treatment for those for those conditions. And we expect somehow that when people get out of jail, 
they're going to do something different. No, exactly. That's, that's exactly what I'm getting at. We're not dealing with the root causes, so it's sort of the problems are just going to keep perpetuating themselves. Um, yes. Yeah, so I want to talk about Real Justice PAC for a moment. This is Sean King's uh, entity, and they have endorsed you, which I think is great. Talk about why this is uh, significant. So Sean King has been a, a vocal leader of the movement demanding police accountability in the wake of so many high-profile uh, killings of, of unarmed civilians by police across the country. And one of the things that Sean... Um, you know, speaks very eloquently about is that over the course of his his time advocating for accountability, he realized that without having progressive district attorneys, without having district attorneys who are committed to equal justice uh, and equal enforcement of the law, um, the police will never be held accountable, whether they lie, steal, or kill. And and the reason for that is because it's the district attorney who makes the decision not to charge police, and we see it over and over again from Ferguson to San Francisco to Staten Island. When the police kill somebody, the district attorney decides not to file charges. And so Sean King launched the Real Justice Pact and, and, and decided that he was going to dedicate himself to supporting progressive prosecutors who were committed to enforcing the law equally. And he's been tremendously successful. He's helped, uh, uh, I don't even know how many, uh, different people get elected um, with a mandate to enforce the law equally, with a mandate to hold the police accountable right. and make all of our communities safer. And so when, when Sean and the Real Justice Pack endorsed me, I was tremendously appreciative, not just for the financial support and the social media support, but because of what it represents in terms of the broader movement that mm -hmm. I'm excited to be part of uh, in this moment in American history. Yeah, no, indeed, this is absolutely the case. They've been doing some actions here in Los Angeles. I mean, I think a prime example is we had a, a police officer kill a man in Venice, and Charlie Beck, who um, at the time was running the police force, even said that the cops should be prosecuted for murder. So when you have that happening and the DA turns around and refuses to, what, what are you supposed to do with that? I mean... <sighs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big problem. And I think, you know, it's not just a problem for the people who are targeted by the police for excessive force and violence. It, it's also a problem for all of those police officers who actually want their departments to have the trust of the communities exactly. they serve and protect. That's because correct. what happens is a small number, a minority of officers who mm -hmm. violate the law with impunity, who get away with murder, undermine and do tremendous damage to the relationship between the police and, and the cities uh, and counties and, and communities that they patrol. Mm -hmm. And that makes all of the officers out there trying to do their jobs less safe. Oh, I agree. It, yeah, it really undermines so many things. It needs to be dealt with. So I want to talk about SB 10 for a second. I think this is a really in, an, uh, in a tremendously important discussion. So as a public defender, you have seen firsthand how absolutely skewed the money bail system is uh, to wealthy elites. And we've seen folks perish waiting to go on trial in prison because they can't post bail, which is just, you're, you're really criminalizing poverty by doing this. So we passed SB 10 last year, late 2018, but it seems to me that this new system that SB, SB 10 put in place isn't necessarily going to be an improvement because it doesn't entirely eliminate the racist, uh, racially motivated aspect 
of what's been driving this, in my opinion. It, it has expanded the prosecutor's ability to seek detention because it's so vaguely written. Um, do, do you think that that's the case? Do you have any concerns on that? I know you've been on the forefront of trying to fix the money bail system. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this. Well, I, as a public defender, I stood next to clients who I knew were innocent and, and watched in frustration as they pled guilty to crimes they didn't commit simply right. to get out of jail. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what the money bail system does. Is it, it says to you, if you're wealthy, you can, it doesn't matter how dangerous you are, you can buy your way out of jail. Mm-hmm. And if you're poor, it doesn't matter how weak the evidence against you is. If you can't come up with the cash, then your only way out is is basically to wait for months and months until you get a trial mm-hmm. or to plead guilty um, and, and um, you know, have a criminal record for the rest of your life. It's a system that makes all of us less safe, that undermines the integrity of yeah. the criminal justice system. And that's why I started fighting against money bail. That's why uh, as early as 2015, I was filing federal lawsuits to try to end this discriminatory practice. Um, now, one of the things that came up over the course of the years that I've been working on uh, ending money bail, as you said, was SB 10. It was a legislative attempt to do away with uh, money bail. Mm-hmm. And I was very excited to be part of the original drafting committee that helped to draft uh, some of the text of that legislation. What happened uh, before it was passed, however, was that it was totally rewritten in a way that dramatically expanded pretrial detention. Uh, yeah. In this country, in this country, uh, thankfully, freedom and liberty are fundamental principles. They're right. basic constitutional rights that this country was founded on. Mm-hmm. And to to say that someone who is arrested and who is presumptively innocent can be detained requires a very high showing of a uh, unmitigable threat to the community. There are some people who are so dangerous that they should be detained, but that's the exception. Right. And it must, it must be the exception in a society that's committed, as ours is, to freedom and to individual liberty. And unfortunately, this bill goes far beyond the language of the California Constitution <sighs> and far beyond the protections of the U.S. Constitution mm-hmm. in basically allowing judges to detain anyone and everyone accused of a crime with with no meaningful limits. And it was for that reason that I ultimately opposed Senate Bill 10, although Mm -hmm. I was very excited about the prospect and continue to be of ending money bail. And in fact, I'm committed as district attorney to prohibiting anybody in my office from putting a price tag on freedom. Uh, Once I'm elected, we will not use money bail. We, We will, in some limited exceptional cases, ask judges to detain someone without bail if they present such a serious risk to the community that, that, that we can't safely release them. But for everyone else, we're going to be asking for release on appropriate conditions that can ensure public safety. Jason, what do we do about SB 10 now? It seems to me that this expansion in powers on pretrial detention is really dangerous. Um, can we it, fix it? It is. It is dangerous, but the there's there's two things we can do about it. One is the bail industry, for its own reasons, because it wants to protect its profits, oh, um, has also come out against 
SB 10 and gathered enough signatures to prevent SB 10 from taking effect. It was supposed to take effect this October, um, but instead it's going to be on the ballot um, in November. Yeah, in proposition in November 2020. So there's a, a very real chance that because of the bail industry's profit motive, SB 10 will uh, will not be an act, not take effect. The um, irony. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So folks on the folks, progressive folks like myself came out against it because it was going to result in an increase right. uh, in pretrial detention, and the bail industry came out against it because they wanted to protect their profits. So it is ironic, uh, mm. but that that sort of coalition may end up um, defeating SB 10 in 2020. And in the meantime, one of the cases that I am litigating and that I uh, initiated in San Francisco is pending before the California Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's a case called In Ray Kenneth Humphrey, and it's a case that presents a lot of these issues of, um, you know, of um, of money bail and and discrimination, wealth discrimination, and racial mm-hmm. discrimination. And uh, we are waiting for the um, California Supreme Court to issue a ruling. The okay. the opinion. The opinion that's being reviewed, the Court of Appeal opinion, is an opinion which we won. We were very happy with that opinion uh, because it said that you cannot use money bail to detain someone. Good. That if you're going to set bail, it has to be in proportion to that person's ability to pay. It can't mm-hmm. simply be used to discriminate against poor folks. So we're, we're optimistic that we'll um, have an opinion from the California Supreme Court sometime this year uh, and that that opinion will help us move uh, significantly uh, towards a system that does not rely on wealth as a basis for determining who is in jail and who is on the streets. Okay, so that's good. So maybe we get a remedy from the court itself as opposed to the legislative bodies. So, but that's wild that that the two factions that um, have opposite desires are banding together to defeat this bill. It seems to me that none of this actually reflects justice, though. It's it, there's seems to me that there's no actual pursuit of the ideal of what is just in the system. It's either about money. It's either about winning. You know, I um, I, I worry about that because when you have prosecutors that no longer care about what is just and they care more about winning, you end up with a sort of just perverted system based on nothing that resembles our constitutional ideals to begin with. Um, well, th- a, lot of people, yeah, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people say that a lot of people say that they don't trust the criminal justice system. And they say that from all perspectives. It's not just the left or right thing. I mean, folks yeah. on all sides, uh, victims, uh, family members of those who are accused of crimes. Um, even many of the lawyers who work in, in the hall of justice say that the only justice is, is outside the courtrooms. And mm-hmm. it's a problem when people lose faith in the criminal justice system. And, and that's happening because of dishonesty, because of falsified uh, evidence, because of the ways in which the system fails to actually meet the needs of victims of crime. Um, so, you know, I think one of the challenges for me and for this broader movement is to restore faith in the system, to restore this idea that, you know, if you're innocent, the system is going to uh, you know, is going to redeem you, um, and not that you're going to get railroaded. But you know, we have cases in, in San Francisco where people are wrongly uh, convicted of things as serious as murder, mm. and uh, languished behind bars for many years. It's one of the reasons why I'm committed to establishing a wrongful conviction unit, which is to, great. 
Yeah, to go back and review old cases where there was, uh, you know, evidence was suppressed or where, uh, in for one reason or another, uh, a person who's, you know, innocent and can prove with DNA or other forensic evidence um, was wrongfully convicted and, and take another look at those cases to make sure that we're not um, either letting people who actually committed those crimes uh, continue to, to perpetuate uh, crime on the street, but also to make sure that we don't have people languishing behind bars for something they didn't do. Um, and, and I think that's a critical part of restoring trust in the criminal justice system and ensuring that we have policies in place that would prevent those sorts of horrific errors from occurring again. I think that's an important conversation. I like that you have this idea of creating the wrongful convention uh, unit. I think that's really important. There are, because we've seen the opposite in the last 10, 15 years, there's been cases where innocent folks are languishing in jail and the DNA, the, the, the prosecutors decide not to look at the DNA evidence. They actually fight people like the Innocence Project that are trying to rectify these problems. And I don't understand why that's the case. Why would you knowingly want to keep an innocent person behind bars when the actual person that committed the crime is still out there committing crime? This just doesn't make sense. Yet here we are. Well, yeah, I think there's, I think part of it is that there, you know, we we really need a culture shift in the district attorney's office, and yeah. um, you know, across the country, district attorneys have been measuring their success based on conviction rates and length of sentence. Um, you know, two metrics that are really disconnected either right. from victims' victims' rights and, yep. and, and victims' needs uh, or from from uh, public safety and justice. And so uh, I want to focus on rewarding those prosecutors in my office who can achieve the lowest recidivism rates and the highest victim satisfaction rates. Um, those two things are much more uh, connected to this, this, this justice, this, this criminal justice system, um, than conviction rates. And they're much more consistent with restoring integrity to a system that is distrusted and disliked by so many. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's great. So what is your opinion on capital punishment? Do you think the state can be trusted with this power? A- absolutely opposed to capital punishment. I, I don't think that um, you know we can prohibit murder on the one hand, which of course we should, and then on the other hand, turn around and kill human beings. I think it's particularly problematic because we know how racially charged uh, capital punishment is. We know that it's far more likely to be a death penalty case if the victim of the crime is white than if the victim of the crime is not white, and that if the perpetrator is is not white. Um, and we also know that we make mistakes, that people are wrongfully convicted, that it happens... Uh, with, with some frequency. And the risk of executing an innocent person, um, it, even if it's a, a small percentage risk, we know that it will happen, that it has happened. We can't take that risk with human life. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, even if you, in some philosophical wor- world, think an eye for an eye is an okay thing, the reality is that the state has abused this. They have uh, killed people that were innocent of crime. They have racially motivated the use of it it's yeah it's pretty gross i'm glad to hear that you feel that way because i agree with you um i want to talk a second about involuntary servitude because i think this is um, another big problem that we have in the system we uh luckily left here in california we have less of a problem because we're no longer using private prison companies but most of the country still does and 
And I think ICE is a good example of this. We still have ICE detention centers that are being run by Geo Prison Group here in California. Um, it seems to me that we have sort of incentivized financially longer sentences. We've incentivized, you know, we've done all these things that have kind of contributed to the problem and corporations are benefiting from it on the, on the other side of it. And Kamala Harris actually defended this position um, when the ruling came down that we had to release folks from California. She actually went into court or her attorneys went into court and basically made the case that they were an important part of our labor pool, which I just think is so grossly unethical. What are your thoughts well, on this? Yeah, I think it's it's really problematic to make public policy about something as uh, sensitive as incarceration uh, based on private profit incentives. And yeah. when we allow, whether it's the Prison Guard Union or the GEO Group or Corrections Corporation of America yeah. to capture our state legislature and start creating policy about length of sentence and conditions of confinement, um, we, you know, we, we really um, do tremendous damage to um, the the purpose of the criminal justice system. So I don't support private prisons. I don't support um, for-profit prison labor. I do absolutely support giving people who are incarcerated uh, the opportunity to work, to earn yeah. money, and to develop skills that can help them remain crime-free when they come back to their community. Okay. That's different. I think that's a different conversation. I hear where you're coming from there. So um, how do we make that work? Because I know part of the problem was like, for example, Victoria's Secret was able to have prisoners creating their bras and panties and they were getting paid six cents an hour or something insane. And obviously the profit margin on that for uh, Victoria's Secret is enormous and it also takes away jobs from folks that are, you know, actually in the labor pool having to pay rent, et cetera. So, but I do think there's a space for education, for work and all of those things inside prison. And I do think it helps with recidivism. So what, what are your solutions in that capacity? Well, I think the first solution is to send less people to prison. I mean, we yeah. have far more <laughs> exactly. people in prison, right? I mean, the United States has more than 2.2 million people behind bars on any given day. It's 25% of the world's prison population. And it's such an epidemic yeah. uh, that literally more than half of Americans, Tina, more than half have an immediate family member who's it's currently insane. or formerly incarcerated. It's insane. Yeah. It's tremendously expensive, destructive. California, 10%. Wow. of the state budget, 10% of the state budget is the prison system, right. is paying for prisons. That doesn't even count the county jails or the local courthouses. So this is something that has become a snowball that is is crushing entire families and communities, that it is uh, you know, not just a, a cycle of recidivism for the individual people who are going to prison, but for their families, for their kids, for generations that, that grow up without parents. Um, we need a drastically different approach. And yes, rehabilitation for those in prison is a key part of it, but so is so is preventing people from going to prison in the first place where we can safely do so. Uh, so what, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, to me, it looks like a couple of things. First, restorative justice. Every victim of every crime in San Francisco, when I'm district attorney, will have the right to participate in a restorative justice process where they focus mm -hmm. on healing the harm that was caused by the crime and giving the person who caused that harm, uh, holding them accountable in a way that gives them the opportunity to heal the damage they've done. Yeah. That is far more effective, it's far uh, healthier, and it's far more 
uh, and it's far less expensive than what we're doing today. And it does more for victims and it does more to prevent crime in the future. So that's one thing, restorative justice. Another thing is to say for those people who uh, can't or won't participate in restorative justice for whatever reason, to look at the context, the big picture uh, that, that surrounds the crime that was committed. And it doesn't mean it's an excuse. It doesn't mean we don't punish people uh, in cases of serious crimes. Of course we do. But we also do it with an eye towards understanding the root causes. Was it drug addiction? Was it mental illness? Was it trauma? Were they themselves a victim of crime? Exactly. Um, did, did they experience a trauma in their life? And in those cases where we can identify a root cause, um, the punishment and the accountability has to include addressing that issue. You know, if you're going to be uh, in jail and you're someone who's mentally ill, we need to make sure you're getting mental health treatment while you're in jail, not right. putting you in solitary confinement, which is what we do today. Right. If you're someone who's drug addicted and and the drug addiction is causing you to steal, we can't expect you to stop stealing just because we put a felony conviction on your record. Exactly. We need to make sure that you're getting treatment so you can stay sober, start working, earning your living instead of stealing. I agree with that. Um, this public health issue. Also, um, on that note, what are what are your thoughts on legalizing? I think, um, I think both in the area of prostitution and drugs, there can be some area in which some of these things are legalized. I think you know it's that whole prohibition era type mentality: make it illegal, ban it, and it increases the crime. I think there's some logic to that. What are your thoughts in that area? I am a big proponent of decriminalization of drugs and of sex work. I don't think prohibition works. I think it actually has the adverse effect. It makes it makes more, it creates a more profit motive, and it also exactly. makes people working in those industries much more vulnerable. So one of the things that I've heard over and over again from uh, sex workers in San Francisco is that because they don't feel safe going to the police because they could be arrested and prosecuted That's themselves. Right just for earning their living, um, it means they're vulnerable to get robbed, raped, and worse. Yep. I uh, 100% agree with you. You know, I worked on human trafficking legislation 15 years ago in the state when Arnold Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger was governor, um, AB 2810. And one of the things we were trying to do was have the police at least in the very least ask 10 questions of the prostitutes that they arrested to find out if they were actually victims of human tra trafficking as opposed to criminalizing what was happening. And just that minor shift in attitude, I have to tell you, was really, really fucking difficult because, you know, the, the, it's like a cultural shift. Like you were talking about earlier, we need a cultural shift. People perceive prostitution as being immoral and ergo, because it's immoral, it's a crime. It's sort of this, there's this leap that happens. And it's like, that might not be your lifestyle choices, but uh, I think legalizing prostitution for those that want to do it is fine. And I think that also helps alleviate the human trafficking problem that we have also seen increase, actually. Um, do well, you think it, there's a relationship? It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we absolutely need to prevent and vigorously prosecute human trafficking, yeah. sex trafficking, forced sex work, uh, pimping, pandering. What we're talking about decriminalizing is very different. We're talking yes. about people who choose voluntarily exactly. to earn their living through sex work. Yeah. 
it's, as I say, the oldest profession. We are not going to succeed in eliminating it, no matter how much we might like to. It is going to exist. And as long as it does, we are much better equipped to uh, enforce those other laws, the sex trafficking and the forced temping and and, and prostitution. uh, If the folks who are doing it voluntarily know that they can safely go to the police when someone tries to kidnap them or someone rapes them. And when people who are on the streets being forced to sell their bodies by pimps and traffickers can't be told, oh, well, if you go to the police, they'll arrest you. I mean, the, the oldest the oldest line in the, in the sex trafficker playbook is to tell their victims, if you go try to get help, they'll arrest you right. for being a prostitute. So by decriminalizing, we avoid that entirely. And we actually empower law enforcement to do a more effective job uh, going after the traffickers. Oh, I agree. You know, there was a time actually when I was working on that bill, believe it or not, where human traffickers were getting a max penalty, wait for it, of four years. That was the max. Wow. (laughs) Which is, I know, it's a mind fuck, isn't it? So, you know... And the thing that was happening is you had the RICO laws being applied to drug trafficking. So a lot of the drug tra- this is organized crime. A lot of the drug traffickers were starting to realize that they could uh, prostitute sex workers instead, resell the goods multiple times a day, and get max four years as opposed to 20 to life. So it, wow. it was a true perversion in the system. But one of the things, like I had the DA, and I can't think of his name at the time that was here in Los Angeles, came to testify to public safety committee. And one of the things that he was making the case for was that I can't put the real criminals in jail because you guys have hamstrung me. He goes, not only are you saying it's a four-year max penalty, you're also deporting my witnesses if they were trafficked from outside of the country when they should be given visas. He goes, now I've lost my witnesses. I can't prove a case. So there was a right. whole, so I mean, it's improved since then. It's gotten a lot better, but there are still a lot of issues in the system. And I worry a little bit about the sex worker um, aspect of the conversation because I do think we should legalize prostitution. And I don't think that those um, those folks should be um, criminalized in the process of criminalizing the actual traffickers because they're, it's, it's a conflation that's being made right now currently, and I don't think it's a good one, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I, I, I think that the, the, the efforts to root out sex trafficking are, are well-intentioned, but often really damaging to the work that we need to do. Uh, and I think the, you know, the ways in which this sort of Protestant, moralistic, mm-hmm. uh, revulsion at sex work has permeated law enforcement yeah. makes uh, people on the streets much more vulnerable. And we should be trying to protect them and get them off the streets, uh, certainly when they're um, uh, against their will, and we're not able to do that effectively because of these laws and these policies. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. It's a lot of it's religious morality being sort of conflated with legal ethics, and those are two different things. So, what yeah. other aspects of your platform are important to you that we haven't discussed yet? Well, I think you know the restorative justice and, and empowering victims is a key part of it. Uh, focusing on the root causes of crime to make the city safer and, and, and break this cycle of recidivism is a key part of it. Mm-hmm. The wrongful conviction unit, uh, immigration unit. You know, I, I, we haven't talked about that, but San Francisco is and always has been a city of immigrants, uh, yeah. tremendously diverse. And you know, this is a moment when the Trump administration is on the attack against immigrants and against immigrant communities and is mm-hmm. using immigration as a, a political football to divide the country and to yeah. justify all kinds of horrific xenophobic policies. 
And this is a moment when San Francisco needs to step up and say, we will be the first line of resistance against those policies. And and so I've, I've pledged to create an immigration unit to do just that. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a mechanism that, it's a, it's a unit, excuse me, that will um, serve a couple different functions. One is to help people who are victims of crime, mm-hmm. who may not be citizens, get a U visa and to expedite mm-hmm. that work to make sure that we are doing everything we can to help crime victims uh, obtain legal status in the country. Uh, that's going to make it easier for people to come forward and re- report crimes to the police, mm-hmm. uh, cooperate with prosecution. The other thing that I want this unit to do is to enforce criminal laws against immigration agents. Yes. When, you know, when ICE agents come into our communities and uh, arrest without a warrant uh, parents just because they look like they're of Latino descent, they're endangering children. Mm-hmm. Child endangerment is a crime and we will prosecute that crime. When ICE agents come to our courthouse and wait outside and arrest people coming out of their court dates who have a future uh, court date, whether they're a witness and a victim or whether they're a defendant accused of a crime, they're obstructing justice. Mm -hmm. And we will prosecute that crime. And I want to make it very clear to the Trump administration, your agents are not welcome in San Francisco. We do not want you coming into our communities and kidnapping folks. And San Francisco law enforcement will never cooperate with uh, federal uh, immigration authorities, unless there's a court order to do so. And the reason for that is simple. We need everybody in San Francisco to know that they are safe reporting crimes, that they can come forward and ask for help and protection. And when local law enforcement cooperates with ICE, then immigrants, no matter how serious the crime they're victimized by, whether it's domestic violence, sexual assault, won't feel comfortable reporting crimes, won't feel mm-hmm. comfortable right. cooperating with law enforcement, and all of us are less safe as a result. So is how is it that ICE, in my opinion, ICE is like the damn Gestapo. They should be abolished. The Department of Homeland Security should have never been created. That's my strong opinion. But how is it that ICE is able to do this without warrants? How are they uh, getting around these legal aspects of what they're doing? Because I, I have seen stuff like this. Well, I mean, they do it partly because um, we don't have local law enforcement willing to stand up and stop them. Often we have local law enforcement cooperating. So, you know, they arrest people illegally. And unless those people are able to very quickly get a lawyer uh, to fight for them, they get deported sometimes within within days. Um, You know, I've worked on those cases when I was in law school. I I helped um, um, a team work with a team of lawyers that sued uh, ICE for an illegal raid on, on people um, that was, they arrested folks illegally. They didn't have warrants. They didn't have any lawful basis to make the arrest. Um, and, um, you know, we ended up winning that lawsuit, mm. but it took years of litigation and most people don't have that time. They don't have those resources. And so they uh, voluntarily agree to be deported, um, even if their arrest was, was unlawful. And so I think it's essential that we have local law enforcement willing to stand up and enforce the law to protect all the members of our community. Somebody needs to. And I think, um, are you familiar with John Tanton and the uh, FAIR organization? Um, yes, I'm, I'm familiar. So I think that's an important part of the conversation, too. Trump has appointed several, not just one or two, like a dozen ex-fair people who have, you know, this is an organization. John Tanton was it not only a white supremacist, he's a eugenist um, who has, you know, very grotesque viewpoints of race. 
But this is an organization that thinks all immigration is bad, not just illegal immigration, all immigration. Like there should be zero because they think we, it's white nationalism. We're a white nation. We shouldn't have any more uh, brown and black people enter the country. Um, yeah, I mean, then we saw the same kind of hateful racist rhetoric with regard to Jews, with regard yeah. to people oh, from yeah. Poland, with regard to people from Ireland and Italy. And, you know, you look at the history of this country and it's, it's it, what we're saying today about folks from Central America and Mexico is not so different uh, yeah. from what they said about my ancestors and yours. That's right. Absolutely. You know, it's it's just frightful to me, though, it's 2019 and this it's just history repeating itself. And it brings me back to what the Weather Underground was finding. A lot of this is is American imperialism. The reason these folks are leaving their countries is because we've intervened in grotesque ways in their countries. And there's a tremendous amount of violence going on, murdering, genocide, these things. And it sort of seems to me that this is like a bipolar uh, viewpoint of who we are as a nation. We can't have it both ways. Well, we can try. Yeah. It's, it's totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the Trump administration is forcing this country mm. to make some very difficult decisions about what our identity is and, and what our future is going to be. And I'm so excited to be uh, on the front lines helping to push back against uh, that racist vision that uh, tyrannical vision, that fascist vision of, of the direction the country is going in and, and try to stand up for everyday folks, for working folks, for uh, people who speak different languages, for people who've been victims of crimes, uh, for people whose family members have been accused of crimes. Uh, and I think there's a real potential to do so much better than we're doing today. And it's just, um, it's a really exciting moment for me to, to be part of. Chesa, if folks want to donate to your campaign, where should they go to do that? We absolutely welcome donations. Uh, we need support of the grassroots campaign. Uh, please donate and, and check us out online at www.chesaboudin.com. That's C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. And uh, we, we welcome support uh, from all across the country. Uh, it is a national movement, and uh, we do need uh, all the help we can get. So thank you, and, and thanks absolutely. to your listeners. Also, what's your Twitter handle if they want to follow you? At Chesa Boudin, C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N. And uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook as well. Very easy to find because I've got a, a pretty unusual name. Yeah, <laughs> spelled C-H-E-S-A just for the listeners. <laughs>